Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. What do you think of when you hear the terms New Age, Occult, Esoterica, or New Thought? Certainly something springs to mind on one of those terms at least. Growing up in the 1990s, I often remember these terms being sneered at and derided as something illegitimate. But these terms are still, nonetheless, interesting to me, and I'd like to learn more about them. My guest today, Mitch Horowitz, is a well-known author and historian on these topics. Our conversation in this episode centers around Mitch's upcoming article, The New Age and Gnosticism, which is coming out in a month or so in Gnosis, the Journal of Gnostic Studies. Mitch's article discusses the lives of three figures, William Walker Atkinson, author of The Kabbalion, Edgar Casey, the forefather of holistic medicine, and Neville Goddard, whose teachings center around the idea that the human imagination is God. Mitch Horowitz is a writer-in-residence at the New York Public Library, a lecturer-in-residence at the University of Philosophical Research in Los Angeles, and the Penn Award-winning author of books including Occult America, One Simple Idea, How Positive Thinking Reshaped Modern Life, Mind as Builder, and The Miracle Club, How Thoughts Become Reality. Mitch has written on everything from the war on witches to the secret life of Ronald Reagan for the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, Salon, Time, and Politico. He is the voice of popular audiobooks, including Alcoholics Anonymous and the Jefferson Bible. Mitch has discussed alternative spirituality on CBS Sunday Morning, Dateline, NBC, NPR's All Things Considered, and throughout the national media. His work has been censored in China. I'm delighted to have Mitch on the show to discuss the article, The New Age and Gnosticism. So without further delay, I bring you my conversation with Mitch Horowitz. Mitch Horowitz, welcome to Classical Ideas. Thank you for being here. Thank you, man. Very glad to be. Can you just briefly tell the audience sort of who you are? Sure. I am a historian of alternative spirituality. I document metaphysical practice uh, in history and in terms of its practical use, which is an area that I write in as well. I love it. We're going to get into all that, but I want to geek out with you for a second because the first thing that struck me when I found you on Twitter was your fantastic American Flag Misfits t-shirt. Oh, yes. And I just had to ask you, like, what kind of music are you into? Uh, what, where, does your, where does your musical interest lie? Oh, well, I'm perpetually into the music that I grew up with, like most of us. And so it probably lies with 1980s punk, early punk. I'm interested in the New York Dolls, Lou Reed, The Clash, The Sex Pistols, The Dead Kennedys, The Misfits, of course. Uh, That was the music of my youth, and it's followed me well into adulthood. I love it. I, I hope uh, maybe you can get on the uh, the podcast Turned Out a Punk with Damien Abraham someday. Um, he's a Toronto uh, singer in a hardcore band up there, and he has this amazing podcast Turned Out a Punk about people who discuss their, their impact and how that genre of music has gotten into their life throughout. Oh, yeah. that's magnificent. I remember first hearing the Dead Kennedy song Holiday in Cambodia when I was 17. 
and oh, it was just yeah. like the the Red Sea parted. Oh, it man. meant everything to me, and I it, it opened me up to an entirely new world, a new way of thinking, a new aesthetic. It, it was just the, the the turning of a key. You know, and music for me led me into being able to discuss the ideas that we're talking about today. Like, I learned so much from Greg Graffin from Bad Religion or Chris mm-hmm. Hanna from Propaganda. And, like, they opened my I, the way that I see the world and the ideas behind, you know, intellectual thought. I, yes. Does, uh, does music fit into what you do every day now? Like, do you feel that music was sort of like a gateway for you to be a historian of alternative spirituality or the occult? Well, it certainly fits into the aesthetic of what I do. Uh, Since I write in fields that are often associated with New Age spirituality or variants of alternative or Eastern spirituality, there's a really calcified aesthetic, I find, within that field, both in terms of writing style, in terms of book covers, in terms of personal appearance, in terms of video appearance and interviews. And I don't think we should ever settle into these kind of calcified styles. The cover of every New Age book doesn't have to be a lily floating in a pond, and Mm. not every purveyor of its ideas has to dress in floppy sweaters like Stuart Smalley or Mm. dress like Stevie Nicks. No disrespect to Stevie Nicks, who I love, but we tend to get into these uniforms, and punk for me helped blow apart that sense of a, a uniform. I resonated so deeply with the aesthetics And then I also found that some of the bands that I truly love, like the Bad Brains, for example, or Minor Threat, were into uh, mind power ideas, positive mind ideas, but in a way that had a real world edge to it, in a way that wasn't naive, in a way that didn't default to a kind of typified language or lingo. So I would say Mm -hmm. punk helped me aesthetically approach my field in a more independent way. I love it, man. I, I completely agree. And it, another band that jumps out to me is Shelter, talking about like, uh, the teachings of the Bhagavad Gita. Yes, it's yes. just fantastic. I agree. All right. Well, thank you for going down that little path with me for a moment. I just have Happy to geek to. out with people who lo- still love punk rock, you know, even into adulthood. And yes. just shamelessly just wear it and own it. It's just the best. That's me. That's my t-shirt collection. I love it, man. Okay, so we're going to talk today about an article that you have coming out. And you have so many books... And and you've been on so many other podcasts and have so many videos online that people can find. But I'm really excited today to talk to you about an article that you read or that you wrote uh, called The New Age and Gnosticism, which is coming out in a month or so, correct? That's right. It's coming from Brill Publishing. It's part of an anthology called Gnostic America that they're publishing in July. Excellent. So the journal is Gnosis, the Journal of Gnostic Studies, and the journal describes itself as, this is directly from their website, a peer-reviewed publication devoted to the study of Gnostic religious currents from the ancient world to the modern, where Gnostic is broadly conceived as a reference to special direct knowledge of the divine, which either transcends or transgresses conventional religious knowledge. So to me, your piece is sort of like an homage to your influences, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but that connects ancient societies to today. Do you see your yes. article as being like sort of a bridge between the ancients and now? That's my wish. It's an indirect bridge to be sure, because sometimes we're all too hasty to find antecedents for our contemporary ideas in antiquity. And of course, some of the people who pioneered contemporary ideas that I'm interested in, some of the people who I mentioned in the article, including the mystics Edgar Casey and Neville Goddard, didn't necessarily have any connection to Gnostic thought. I don't even know that they read it in translation, but they were modern folks 
who had parallel insights, which is something that I always look for. When you find people or cultures that are separated from by vast stretches of time and geography who nonetheless arrive at parallel or closely related insights, I always pay attention to that because I think that the universal way of thought, universal truths about human nature, about psychology, about our psyches, tend to be found in areas of intersection. When there are people across vast removes who arrive at tantalizingly similar conclusions or insights, that to me is where to start digging. So I found, as I explained in the article, some figures, some of the best figures who are, associ who are associated with contemporary New Age thought and who had no contact with Gnosticism or any other philosophies from late antiquity, nonetheless arrived at similar insights, similar ideas, similar expressions of life. And I find that very reassuring about human nature, that there is a kind of rough uh, unity to truth. And that's one of the things I explore in the article. Excellent. I want to tease apart some terms here in a second, but I'm curious about your relationship with um, academia and peer-reviewed environments. Like, you have a big reach with your, like, mainstream books. They're widely available. Do, yeah. you, do you have a long history of working in, like, peer-reviewed environments, or is this sort of a new foray for you? That's an interesting question. I, I, I weave in and out of academia. This uh, article that I wrote grew out of a conference that I attended in spring of last year at Rice University, and the, the, the aim of the, the, the title of the conference was Gnostic America. And the aim was for different scholars and academics to get together and discuss the question of whether trends from Gnosticism, the late uh, ancient form of spirituality that itself was a kind of heterodox Christianity that retained certain ideas from pagan antiquity, whether these ideas have survived with any degree of integrity in the modern world, in modern art, modern practice. And I delivered a uh, talk at the conference, which can be found on YouTube, and then I separately wrote this paper, which is coming out in this July anthology. And it, you know, it's interesting. One of the things I'm most proud of is that when I attend an academic event or when I deliver a paper at an academic conference, I don't alter my message. I don't proffer a different point of view in front of an academic audience that I might proffer in front of a, a mainstream audience or a radio audience or an audience of my readers. By and large, I'm saying the same thing to both groups. And that's been, frankly, the greatest point of pride in my career up to this point. I, I do wish to be able to weave among audiences of different sincere people, different earnestly, earnestly seeking people. And sometimes I'm very successful in doing that within academia. The Rice Conference was a unique opportunity because I think it just brought together an extraordinary group of people. Uh, and other times I, I speak very plainly and very directly to a mainstream audience or an audience at spiritual growth centers. I speak at a lot of museums, a lot of universities, a lot of galleries. And at the same time, I, I'm on late night talk radio shows like Coast to Coast AM. Um, I, I write articles for 
New Age magazines, speak at spiritual growth centers, and you'll find the same message in in all these different places. And that's something that I I take a, a certain pride in. That's fantastic. All right, so I want to dive into this piece a little bit and talk about some of the specific figures. But first of all, I have never really talked about the concept of Gnosticism in any form on this show, so I'm really excited about this. How would you describe little g Gnosticism versus Gnosticism with a big G? Sure. Uh, Gnosticism with a big G, as it's generally used, is a term that circulates through academia today. It's a term that you'll also find in in other reaches of life. Um, It it was actually coined in the 17th century by uh, the philosopher Henry Moore, and he was referring to the late ancient movements that swirled around the Mediterranean basin in the generations immediately following Christ. Uh, They were a very fascinating combination of heterodox Christian and mystical sects who were incorporating together the insights of the biblical and hermetic and Greek worlds. These sometimes included Christian insights. These sometimes included pagan insights. These sometimes included remnants of the mystery religions of Egypt and Persia. And they were never accepted or enfolded into the church, nor did they want to be. And they practiced uh, what the Greeks referred to as gnosis, or what we might call mysticism, which was a direct way of knowing the divine. It was a kind of information or knowledge that you gleaned through practice, that you gleaned through some sort of revelation or insight. The Greeks spoke of a concept called nous, or overmind. Ralph Waldo Emerson called it the oversoul. Sometimes it's referred to today as infinite intelligence, the idea that there is this one great intellect from which everything that is emanates and that we individuals ourselves are a reflection of are a reflection of that great intellect and as such we can create within our own sphere this is one of the meanings behind the hermetic principle as above so below or as it's translated in western scripture a god created man in his own image so this is uh, some of what the ancient Gnostic sects were working with. And when people use Gnosticism with a large G, often within academia, they're referring very specifically to that historical time and place. I use Gnosticism with a small G, as I point out in the article, because I think that these insights have become so incorporated, sometimes indirectly, into our contemporary spiritual culture that they've become a a freestanding point of view of their own. They don't necessarily go back to or find their antecedent in what the Gnostic sects were doing, but they've really become a basic part of the Western spiritual outlook. Hmm. You mentioned in the article that that modern scholars have some frustration with the term Gnosticism. What are those conversations and debates like regarding the term? They fe- some scholars feel it's very poorly defined. Some scholars feel that the Gnostic sects were so diffuse, so scattered, so wide-ranging that it's not really possible to talk about a core ideology or a core outlook coming out of these groups. They feel that the term is used in too freewheeling a manner. Uh, They feel that the term sort of 
attempts to flatten out or draw neat parameters uh, 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 among a, a very, very diffuse thought system. And I'm sympathetic to those criticisms up to a point. In a way, that's why I wrote the essay. I wanted I, I take those criticisms seriously, and I do think that we can play it too fast and loose with certain terminologies because history is messy, and when we, when we put a label on something, we make it seem very neat, and that can be unrealistic. So I, I take those points of view seriously, and yet ultimately, I do believe that there there was one emergent, if broadly defined, philosophy that can be found among the different Gnostic sets and the sects, and that that philosophy, more as an ideal, uh, can be found, albeit indirectly, uh, within many corners of the New Age movements uh, today. So we were talking about punk rock earlier, and there's a line in the article that is like super punk rock to me. And <laughs> you write that Gnosticism is a sort of like a tradition of anti-tradition. What does that yes. mean? Well, the Gnostic sects themselves, they were diffuse, and they didn't have any centralized or organized structure. There wasn't a top-down authority, although obviously there were different local authorities or priesthood, priesthoods among different uh, groups. Uh, they never really sought approval within <clears throat> the early church, and the early church certainly wouldn't have been willing to extend it. Very often Gnostics were classified as, as heretics or <coughs> pagans who were in need of conversion. They were met with hostility. They were sometimes met with outright violence and persecution, sometimes on a mass scale. And this is all because they were people who didn't fit into any particular mold or template, certainly not the one that was being formulated by the top-down authority of the early church. So in that sense, Gnosticism was a, a tradition of anti-tradition. It has endured, sometimes among individuals, sometimes in a threadbare form, sometimes in an indirect form, but it is present in our world, and it was a great expression of a kind of locally or individually devised sense of faith, one with no parameters. It was non-traditional in that it just could not fit within any neat centralized structure. So something that doesn't fit, I'm thinking back to my own life growing up, and I'm a product of the 90s, and you use a term a lot in your writing that is the word, the phrase New Age. Mm -hmm. And it's in the title of the article, and it fascinates me because I've also never talked about anything um, New Age on this show specifically. Mm -hmm. And so, like, growing up in the 90s, I was in a Catholic <clears throat> family, and I always saw New Age as very pejorative. Yes, yes. Good point, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and, like... So if something doesn't fit, like oftentimes when I was growing up as a kid, New Age was like the people who didn't fit. And you call it a late 20th and early 21st century of therapeutic spirituality. So I'm curious if you see the term New Age being rehabilitated as we move further away from the 90s, or if you see anything related to that changing. Yeah, I appreciate that question. I, I use the term New Age very purposefully because I'm, I'm very aware of how it's generally used as a pejorative, certainly within mainstream culture and very often within alternative spirituality itself. When people use the term New Age, they mean everything that's 
fickle, that's trendy, that's soft-headed, that's unserious, and I completely get it, and I used to take umbrage when people would direct the term New Age at me, but eventually I came to embrace the term because, as you were referencing, I feel it's simply a catch-all term for this culture of radical ecumenism and therapeutic spirituality that grew out of the 20th century and, and spread across our entire culture. It has very loose parameters, and it believes that the spiritual can serve a therapeutic function in the individual's life. And I think the term has a certain historical integrity, and I don't want it to just be used as an epithet or an insult or sort of a placeholder yeah. for where we put things that we don't like. That said, there are many people within the alternative spiritual culture themselves who object to the use of the term. They can only uh, hear it as, as, as an epithet or some sort of an insult. And my feeling is I'm perfectly willing for people to apply that term to me. I don't think that these terms should be seeded to the cynics or to the critics. And I think that once you start playing that game, it, it just unravels everything. You know, every few years you need to coin some new phrase uh, to protect yourself from whatever associations have gotten attached to the old ones. So, you know, instead of calling themselves a medium, people call themselves a channeler, and then they call themselves an intuitive, and tomorrow they'll call themselves something else. <laughs> But I like the old terminology, so I use terms like occult or new age or ESP for that matter, because I, I feel these terms have historical integrity. Uh, if you work in these fields, they're going to get directed at you sooner or later. And rather than uh, direct energy at uh, calling yourself by new terms or objecting to what people call you, I think it's healthier and more relaxing to just reclaim them. Yeah. You know, one of the critiques of, you know, new age movements is that they're often referred to as cafeteria religions. Yes. And yes. and in the article, you also talk about a person who says, I'm not new age. Like they get really defensive about that yes. term being directed <laughs> at them. So yeah. do you find the critique of something being called cafeteria religion valid or is that too narrow minded? Because certainly there are benefits to doing more than one thing and not fitting within a neat box of spiritual practice. Yeah. Cafeteria religion is another one of those terms with which I have a funny relationship. I fully recognize that it's used as a pejorative. At the same time, I don't mind if people direct that term at me because I feel that most religions throughout history have been syncretic. Most faiths, both ancient and new, combine a, a, a wide array of influences. It's the story of how religions are made in a sense. And I probably, in my own practice, take that to uh, a, a fuller point, to a fuller degree, and I, I do participate in practices and ideas from many different traditions, and I don't want people to feel at all embarrassed about doing that, and if the fee that I have to pay for doing that is to be uh, called a practitioner of cafeteria religion, I'm, I'm accepting of that. And it's funny, I, I don't think I mentioned this in the article, but I remember one day I was seated in a macrobiotic restaurant not far from where I live on the Lower East Side, and I overheard some guys at another table who I recognized from a local yoga studio, and they were saying that on Thursday nights at their studio, they were having some sort of a devotional service to the Vedic god Ganesha, the elephant-headed god who is said to lower barriers, remove barriers. In fact, I have a, a beautiful statue of Ganesha on my desk is where 
talking right now. And my impulse upon overhearing these guys was to think, ah, these New Agers, they're not even real Hindus. Who are they to be, you know, holding a devotional practice to Ganesha? But then I kind of internally stops and said, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's see what comes out of it. You know, religious traditions from the East and the West crisscross uh, over borders all the time. And remarkable things can emerge, remarkable experiences in the life of the individual or sometimes novel or new traditions can emerge that attain some degree of posterity. So before, uh, you know, kind of stifling this in its crib, let's see what happens. Let's see what transpires. And I I realized at that moment that cafeteria religion, so to speak, uh, was something that I was okay with. In In a way, for me, it's synonymous with experiment. Yeah, you know, there's a new book out called "One When One Religion Isn't Enough that I recently really loved. And I've also met a Jesuit priest who is a Zen Roshi, you know, and, uh-huh. Uh-huh. you know, yeah. all those things like they, they can take your practice to new places. Very much. So, I never want people to feel that barriers or, or, or the possibilities of experiment are closed off to them. Definitely. So let's talk about some of these prominent figures that you discuss in the article. I want to start with William Walker Atkinson and his book, The Kabbalion. So I first heard about this man when I was reading the work of a mutual acquaintance of ours, Philip de Slip. Sure. And so Philip appeared on this show to discuss his fantastic article, The Swami Circuit. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Atkinson appears in that article, and Slip edited an edition of the Kabbalion, which originally came out in 1908, and yes. continues to draw this like increasing readership. What do you like about the Kabbalion? What do we? What should we think about the life of Atkinson? How is this relevant in 2019? Well, uh, Atkinson first published the Kabbalion, as you mentioned, in 1908 under a pseudonym of three initiates. Atkinson was a remarkably energetic publisher and writer in popular metaphysics in the early 20th century. He wrote many books under his own name, and he wrote many books under pseudonyms, including Yogi Ramasharka, Magus Incognito, and uh, Theron Q. Dumont, and one book, Three Initiates, uh, uh, which is the Kabbalion. That's probably proven his most enduring and popular book. For many years, there have been debates online over who wrote the Kabbalion, but as as Philip and, and Richard Smoley and, and I demonstrate in other articles, it was decisively and definitely Atkinson and, and, and Atkinson alone. It, it bore all the markings of his work. And he later actually, in a Who's Who article, identified himself as the sole author. It has proven popular, I think, because people often approach the book, as I once did, as just being a novelty of 20th century occultism. It's, it's kind of mind power metaphysics, uh, with a pastiche of Hermetic or Greek Egyptian uh, drama around it. A- at least that's the way I once perceived it. And I came to feel I was wrong. I came to feel that there's greater depth in the book than I originally perceived. About two summers ago, I reread the book five consecutive times. I was very attached to it for a period of time. And I came to realize that the Kabbalion is an authentic retention of certain ancient Greek-Egyptian ideas as reprocessed through Atkinson's insights and as absorbed by Atkinson through a handful of Victorian-era translations of Hermetic literature that he had available to him. And I think he undertook a greatly enterprising act of distilling 
what was available to the Western seeker in terms of hermetic thought in his era, which was the uh, early 20th century, so the Victorian Edwardian era. And he, he assembled this distillation in a quite remarkable and practical way, and in a way that I think has integrity in the Kabbalion. He leavened it, added to it, his own insights, his own perspective, his own point of view, his own modern reference points, and he created a, a stirring and powerful book. And sometimes people really come to feel a tremendous devotion and commitment to this book. It's a short book, but it's a very dense book. There's a great deal packed into it, and people find deep meaning in it. And it's one of the books that I analyze and talk about in my article, because I think it's a it's a modern expression of new age thought that that has real integrity. And that's why we're still speaking about this occult book from 1908. So many were forgotten. So many, you know, you'd name the titles and draw a total blank. But this one not only has grown in popularity, but probably has vastly more readers today than it did when Atkinson was alive, and that's a sign of posterity. And I know that you really appreciate Philip's um, introduction to the book, in which, he bi- in which he does a biography of Atkinson. Tell me about that. Oh, you know, Philip has just been so wonderful in his scholarly work and writing about Atkinson's life and in demonstrating Atkinson's authorship. Too often in our culture, we get hung up on drama, and people want to have debates over who the author may have been, rather than get into the actual work itself. And, and Philip... Uh, has allowed us to sort of set aside that that debate, which can go to a pretty fruitless place. And wh- why why wouldn't Atkinson uh, deserve recognition as the author of this book? I mean, he was a wonderfully prolific and insightful and energetic man, and this is his most lasting work. So I think Philip has done a, a great historical service by making it plain that Atkinson was the author. And then he gives us some insights into Atkinson's life because Atkinson was such a productive man. It's almost hard to believe how much he got done within you know, a period of a few decades. And yet it also demonstrates that if you're really focused, if you're really impassioned, if you're really inventive, you can find within yourself extraordinary abilities. I think there's a lesson for the contemporary person in that. There's an example to be found in Atkinson's life. So when I was looking at your Twitter, um, your tattoos are very visible, <laughs> right. and which is great. So tell me about the tattoo on your arm that reads Neville, because oh, this, yes. is, this is important to your article as well. That's right. Uh, I have a tattoo of a mystic named Neville Goddard, who died in 1972. Neville was a British Barbadian mystic who lived and worked for most of his life in America, and he had one core teaching, which is that your mind is God. Your imagination is God. Dude, that blew and, me away. Yes. <laughs> and that every time you find references to God in Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, it is a symbolic reference to the powers of your own imagination. And everything you experience, including my own words right now, are your own thoughts pushed out into the world. And it's a tantalizingly powerful and radical idea. And Neville was writing all this long before the popularizations of quantum theory and many worlds theory and particle physics. And yet, as I write in the article, he created probably the finest mystical analog to some of uh, theoretical physical thought that's getting talked about increasingly today. He was a remarkable figure, uh, a person of real 
public presence, intellectual acumen, capable, very capable of defending his ideas, defending his point of view. And he would issue a, a call that people, serious people almost immediately wanted to argue with, and understandably so. And he had the ability to defend this point of view. And he would always encourage experimentation. He would say, just try it, try it, try my ideas, try them this very night. If you net nothing from it, then forget you ever heard my name. But if you net something, then uh, come back to another lecture, come back to another pamphlet. Yeah. And he too has attained great popularity. His, his lectures can be widely found online. And he spoke in this beautiful mid-Atlantic accent, never from notes, gave one extemporaneous talk after another in which he restated his basic thesis. But every time he restated it, it sounded new. It sounded fresh. And he was a remarkable figure. He's become one of the most influential figures in my life. So I thought, well, why not get a tattoo of him? When did you first discover Neville? I discovered him in the summer of 2003. I was interviewing a major league pitcher named Barry Zito, who used to pitch for the Oakland A's and the San Francisco Giants. And Barry used in his training regimen these various mind power and positive mind methods. And as we were talking, he said to me, wow, you must really be into Neville. And I had never heard the name Neville before. This is Neville Goddard. He wrote under his first name, Neville. And so immediately I went out and I bought one of Neville's books called Resurrection, which was published in 1966. And I never looked back. I never looked back. I just found that he could combine radical claims and radical experimentation with such an intellectual solidity and such an appealing persona that I knew as soon as I heard Barry mention the name, I had found something. I very often enter into the work of an individual first through my perception of their persona. I get interested in their, their character. Yeah. And I immediately grew interested in Neville as a figure and then I dove into his thought, and I was just completely taken in. Mitch, I'm, I'm fairly new to your work. I'm reading The Miracle Club right now and this article, but have you profiled Neville and Atkinson deeply in any of your other books? Well, I do have a full chapter on Neville towards the end of The Miracle Club. Oh, That's great. That's a chapter called Mirror Man, and so I write extensively about Neville in there. I write about Neville in a previous book called One Simple Idea, which is a history of the positive mind movement. And I have not written extensively about Atkinson himself, but I, I do write extensively about the Kabbalion. I have several articles about it, and I am working on a documentary movie, actually, about the Kabbalion and its authenticity as a modern retention of certain ancient hermetic thought. And we were actually filming on location in Egypt in the month of February. And that movie is called The Kabbalion, and that is going to be coming out at the end of this year. It's directed by Ronnie Thomas, who is an outstanding director whose work has been at the Tribeca Film Festival and who directed an online series called Midnight Archive, which I highly recommend. When, where will that be released? We don't know yet. We Film have festivals. to find a distributor. You know, it could be Netflix. It could be Amazon. It could be somewhere else. We're still in production, so that question remains in front of us. That is awesome. Okay, I'm really excited about that. Um, yeah. I'm going to read the Kabbalion before that comes out as well so that I can dive a little deeper. So right um, I'm curious about your practices. 
like what you do at home every day. So we've talked about Neville, we've talked about Atkinson. You also write deeply about Edgar Casey, the forefather of holistic medicine, in the article. Yes. Yes. How, how do these guys and these types of teachings inspire your actual practice of like what you do, like in your own home or in your teaching or in your life? Sure. They came to awaken me, so to speak, to the idea that. Our minds, I believe, very strongly have extra physical properties. And I could speak to that or defend that point of view on various terms. There's, there are perspectives from science that suggest that point of view. Uh, there's serious scholarly psychical research. There are deepening questions within placebo studies. There's neuroplasticity. There are aspects of quantum theory that I think could be used to defend that point of view. But before it could be defended uh, in terms of science, uh, it was a mystical or metaphysical point of view as it was borne out in the work of some of the people we've been talking about. And I think they had instincts for human nature that were very shrewd, that were very sharp, that were very right. All of this, of course, is debatable. All of this rests uh, to a very great extent on personal testimony, personal experiment. And I suppose it's become my mission in my private life to amass a testimony of my own. I experiment very heavily with all kinds of mental picturization, emotionalized thought patterns, self-suggestion, meditative practices. These things are very, very important to me. Different aspects of prayer are important to me. I feel we get into too limited and calcified a notion of what prayer can really be. I believe that our ancient ancestors gave personifications, names to things that they had identified as energies in nature. And I think they had a much deeper and much profound knowledge and understanding and observation of nature than we possess today. They lived in a world in which death was a very palpable presence, survival wasn't guaranteed. Their lives very heavily were governed by the seasons and by aspects of the natural world. And these people tended to personify uh, energies through names like Thoth or Mercury or Isis or Set or Minerva. And I believe, and I'll be writing about this more in the future, I believe that it's possible for the contemporary individual to undertake experiments of his or her own into these ideas, not just as uh, mythology or anthropology or, or, or as things that are uh, kind of belong to a museum case somewhere or that may contain parabolic truths about human nature. But actually, I think these things can be explored and reconstructed by us to some extent as metaphysical truths and practices. So that's become part of my practice, too. And I challenge the individual to see whether he, and she, he or she might find an actual personal relationship with some of the energetic forms that are described in our mythologies, not to just write them off as parables, but to see them as possibilities for actual practice. So that's become part of my life, too. I'm always curious where scholars and writers are going with their work, and you just kind of alluded to that. So would you say that, like, encouraging individual individuals to experiment is, like, sort of like the plan for your future work? I would say so. I would say so. I, I want people to feel very deeply at liberty to search for things, possibilities, methods, whether that means reconstructing old ideas or finding new forms of practice that 
emerge for them in some useful way and to share what they found. So experimentation and, and the deepening of one's search is of central importance to me. So a, a quote that is widely attached to you and your work is from the Washington Post, who called your work even-handed for treating esoteric ideas and the occult with intellectual studiousness. So are you feeling like this at this point in your career, are you feeling mostly successful in reframing people's pejorative or negative perceptions of the terms new age, occult, esoterica, or new thought? Are you feeling like good about it all? I am feeling good about it. Uh, yes. You know, I, 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 I feel actually right at this point in my career, I'm starting to see spring or the harvest arrive in terms yeah. of there being a more serious conversation around these topics. You know, I, 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 Remember when I first started writing in this vein, maybe going back about a dozen years ago, it was not always easy, frankly, to find an audience because my audience, and I love them, they came from a sliver of mainstream culture where people were willing to take a second look at topics that educated folk are not often encouraged to look at, and a sliver of folks from new age culture who were willing to learn more about the history behind their ideas and also some of the problems and contradictions that we encounter with these ideas. And those slivers have been growing and there has been more receptivity uh, to the work that I've been putting out into the world. I remember at one time, it used to be that if I would speak critically about a new age idea, for example, or about some problem, in new age culture, people sometimes would take great umbrage and feel that I was on the attack. You know, we, we think in such black and white terms, in such binary terms, they couldn't see that I was with them in their very own neighborhood. And I was trying in my own way to, to beautify the neighborhood, to improve the neighborhood, to ask us to take a good hard second look at some assumptions or language or terms that had gotten calcified. And I find that that's being better understood today, and I find that it's being better understood within the mainstream, and I find that I, 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 I have the ability to weave back and forth among worlds. For example, I wrote a piece uh, a few years ago, an opinion piece for the New York Times about the persecution of modern-day witches, and I was delighted the other day to come home to a royalty check, always a pleasing experience, <laughs> yes. because the, the Times had syndicated French rights to the piece. And so I was, I was very pleased to discover that, you know, as, as a pleasant surprise. And so the, the places where some of these things travel, it seems to me, have been, have been broadening. And my passport has a lot of different stamps in it. And that, to me, is something that makes me feel good about where my work is going. Mitch, where would you direct curious folks to, who want to know more about your work? Well, I'm easy to find. Just throw my name into Google, and you can find your way to my website. You can find your way to lectures that are posted up on YouTube. You can find your way to my books. Uh, we've talked about the Miracle Club. I have a book called Occult America that some of your listeners might be interested in, and lots more. You can find them anywhere you buy books, on Amazon or what have you. And, um, and of course, people can follow me on Twitter at Mitch Horowitz. 
Excellent. Well, Mitch, I've got a big list of things here that I'm going to uh, be investigating in the months to come, especially leading up to your documentary, which I'm exceptionally excited about. And I'm so glad that we were able to talk about Philip D. Slip as well, because he's just a fantastic guy and he's doing great work. For sure. Um, So thank you so much for coming on Classical Ideas, Mitch. This has been an absolute pleasure for me. Likewise, I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Streibig. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you like this show, please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at classicalideas at outlook.com. Or find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash classical ideas podcast. Thanks so much for listening.